Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are going to talk about identity and immigration. I have a very special guest, an old friend and even former colleague, Sunda Katwala, who's the director of British Future, but also the author of a fascinating new book called How to Be a Patriot, Why Love of Country Can End Our Very British Culture War. Um, I thought it would be an interesting thing to talk about this on our podcast, firstly, because Over the summer, we're spending quite a lot of time talking about Britain's relationship with the European Union, and he has a lot of interesting things to say about Brexit and identity issues and how these things have intersected uh, both before the referendum, but also uh, since the referendum. And it's been a very interesting debate that we've been having about immigration in the UK post-Brexit as well, where uh, numbers of immigrants have have gone up, even though the EU uh, parts of that have have been going down. Um, But also uh, there are lots of lessons in the book and in Sunder's work generally about how uh, societies can move from being monocultural to to embracing diversity and the different models of embracing diversity. And I think this idea of comparative models feels particularly uh, urgent given uh, the huge movements of population that we've seen uh, in recent years and those which are likely to come uh, in the future and the prominence which uh, refugees and migration issues are now taking again in many European countries in the light of the war in Ukraine um, and the uh, resumption of, of large uh, flows of migration uh, across the, the Mediterranean. So welcome to podcast, Sunda. Great to be here, Mark. So, Sunda, How to Be a Patriot. You, you tell, uh, I mean, it's a wonderful book. You managed to, to deal with some really big uh, topics. There's a lot of policy in here as well, but it's intermingled with your own story as well. So maybe before we get into the story, you can give our, our readers a bit of an account of, of who you are and what being patriotic means to you. Yes, it is it's a personal book, and it, it takes my personal sense of identity and tries to grapple with the state of the nation in polarised times. And, you know, I'm born British in Yorkshire in 1974. My parents have not been in Britain very long. My dad's come from Gujarat in India. He's a doctor. He's working for the National Health Service. He arrives just after that infamous Enoch Powell speech saying he shouldn't come or she should go back. There was a blood speech. speech. And he, he, but he stays, he meets my mum who is from Cork in Southern Ireland. Um, She's come as a nurse. And so I brought up, you know, Sunder Katwal, I've got an obviously Indian name, mixed ethnic heritage. I'm brought up sort of Irish Catholic though, because the Catholics, my dad has a sort of Catholic Hindu mashup, depending on how he can sort of bridge and keep people happy. And I'm I'm growing up in the northwest of England. You know, my dad's into cricket. I'm very into football, so I become a sort of Evertonian. And Everton are you know one of the powers of Europe. Moved to Essex in the Thatcher era, so I'm sort of somewhere in the middle of the British identity questions, sort of a mixed race Essex Scouse kind of person. And Britain goes well for me. It's a book about my confidence in Britain in the last quarter of the last century. Uh, But my question isn't, you know, can I find my way, can my country find a space for people like me? It's why is everyone at loggerheads about identity? Am I the only person comment about identity? Brexit, 7-7, the United Kingdom. 7-7 is the terrorist attack which took place in 2005. 
Yes, statues, culture wars, there are culture clashes, identity clashes on every front now. And so I'm wondering how we get through that. So there is this very optimistic account of how Britain's become much more at ease with itself and and you know within our we're more or less the same age so within our lifetimes we've seen this extraordinary shift from um all sorts of, of very fraught debates about whether particularly people from uh former colonies black people people from the subcontinent of india could actually be british when we were kind of kids we learned about the, the uh, infamous tebbit test where norman tebbit uh, then um, chairman of the conservative party said that he could um, only be English if you support England when it played against the West Indies or India or Pakistan at, at cricket. Um, and there was this kind of idea about a suspicion about having two masters if you had if you were kind of a mixed race at, at that time towards a, a, a period where everyone kind of, you know, Sundar is a is very interested in politics and other things, but his passion for football, um, I think, is greater than maybe his passion for anyone other than his, his wife and his children. Maybe even greater. I don't know. You can tell us. Um, but um, but we saw this very uh, diverse football team um, taking the knee and incarnating a kind of modern um, UK. And that story of football and race is, is another kind of thread in your own life and in the book as well uh, about coming to terms with diversity I think that's where, where I get a bedrock confidence from is if you went to school in this country in the 1980s went to university in the 1990s out into the world there were two big shifts that were going on that, that will stay so the legitimacy of the sort of overt racism that was you know had a public profile in football stadiums but was there in the playground that 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 diminished in the in the early nineties, the mid nineties um, onwards, and then the opening up of public and professional life was was really quite rapid after I graduated from university. You know, I left university in the mid nineteen nineties. No black or Asian person had ever been a government minister in this country. It was an extremely marginal presence, and so the idea that you would have endless numbers of um, chancellors of the exchequer, home secretaries, foreign secretaries, prime ministers, and first ministers of Scotland that were Asian that that was not on the radar. At all, so those kinds of shifts have been have been quite sudden, and there's a big shift towards inclusion and acceptance and race. This is true. I think women going out to work, it's true. People being gay, it's true. Across the generations, we've then got this quite big polarisation by generation, by educational status between the generations. Partly because of that progress, that progress may be felt a bit too fast for other people. So one of the interesting things is that period of time which you're talking about, a period where Britain becomes at ease with itself as a diverse country, Hindu prime minister, a Muslim mayor of London, a Muslim um, first minister of Scotland, and as you say, this kind of Benetton-like cabinet where there were no, practically no white men running for the leadership of the Conservative Party. Um, uh, um, well, actually, there's so many, been so many elections. It wasn't the last one. It was the, the, <laughs> it was the election before. But anyway, the last one, there were no white men either because there wasn't really much of an election. But anyway, um, uh if we um, look at that story, there's been a parallel story, which is about Britain's European identity, where actually we've become, obviously, it's quite dramatic, we're less at ease with our European identity in 2016 with the Brexit referendum. Uh, but interestingly, maybe one of the parallels that we can look at is you had a kind of huge um, migratory flows to Britain after the Second World War, 
at which we initially rejected and led to all the kind of overt racism that you talked about that we were kind of born into the tail end of. Um, and then a kind of process of ease. The, the last few decades have been characterized more by European migration with very large flows from particularly from Poland and from other uh, Central and Eastern European countries, which then result in the kind of big backlash of, of 2016. Um, how do you think these two forces of, of, uh, of, of race and um, kind of uh, ethnic diversity um, and Europeanization relate to each other? Are they kind of separate? Are they, how do they intermingle with one another? You've got a very interesting chapter on, on Brexit and Billericay. Billericay, for the European listeners, is, so you can maybe tell us a bit more about it. There's a town in Essex where your in-laws come from. Yes, Billericay and Essex voted seven out of ten to leave as a lot of places, you know, out around, you know, Essex, Kent, Southern England, Northern England did. My in-laws are sort of keener on Brexit than anybody else because my father-in-law would say that he's, as a young man, he voted to leave in 1975, so we could have listened to him and saved 40 years of trouble. Um, and they, you know, they are they are getting very uh, agitated in that three years of stalemate where they voted to leave and we're not leaving. We're debating the parliamentary processes. And on that point, as someone who voted Remain, you know, I get why they thought. That and it always felt to me that rejoin was a legitimate project, whether it took five years, ten years, or forty years. But remain after twenty sixteen wasn't a legitimate project. I think I think that just that big, obvious, simple point was missed by people who sort of understood all the intricacies of why it would be difficult, and that reflected what happened in the referendum itself, which is that the argument was won with people who went to university, and it was won with people who read books. The argument to, to stay in to the stay in the European Union, Union. Yeah. but but. Probably three to one graduates voted in, and a quarter of people had a university degree. But it was not just for full information. Your father-in-law is not a university graduate. He's no, a, he's not. He's a he's a, he's a builder. A builder. builder. So builder. one of yeah. the classic groups that yeah. felt dispossessed yeah. by these migratory flows. And yes, he's, you know, you know, European immigration. He says everyone he knows over sixty-five, you know, of his age and background in Essex agrees with him, and largely. The, the, you know that's probably right. I think this point you make about the arc of British history is is often missed because we're, we're three quarters of a century now from this symbolic moment uh, of the Windrush arriving, which became the symbolic moment of post-war immigration, multi-ethnic, multi-faith Britain, and the first quarter century of that is this story of arrival, contested story of arrival, at the end of which you end Commonwealth free movement. But but the diversity is here to stay because people are being born. In Britain, there's no repatriation, and so then you then you get the the next generation story is what happens to the black and Asian children of the Commonwealth migrants? Will they ever be us, Sunda Katwara or Rishi Sunak? And Enoch Powell says that's never going to happen. And of course, he's not wrong actually. But at the end of the century, he says in 1948, there'll be four million of them, the migrants and migrant descended. There are two million Commonwealth migrants, two million children, but are they them or us? It feels to the Sunni Katwaras that you could be us as well. It's an interesting parallel then, I think, with what happens again with, you know, European free movement isn't a big issue in 1973 or 1975. Um, It becomes so after the EU enlargement. People feel governments handle the pace of change very badly. They quite like the polls they meet if they meet them, but they don't think it's being handled. It was well. one of the extraordinary features. I mean, you, your organisation, British Future, has done a huge amount of really interesting polling on on immigration. And what I think you found and other people found throughout, even at the height of, of anti EU sentiment in 2016, 
if you ask people questions about what polls are like or focus grouped it, most people thought they were hardworking, they were yeah. unlikely to be on benefits, they were kind of decent, nice people. It's just the, the numbers that were yeah. creating pressure on, on, on the labour market and on public services in particular parts of the country where people were flowing. There's a scale, there's a pace of change issue. There's, is it fair for me? And we've got to be nice to people who come and contribute, but we've got to handle it fairly if people are already here. People don't feel governments do that. And then, then that softens afterwards. So the story for Britain of having free movement twice... With the Commonwealth as well, the, what it said in the Parliament in 1948 is you all must come. We make no distinction. You're very welcome. When people arrive, then you think, well, we didn't mean it. So, but there's also a crisis. There, there yeah. was a kind of Brexit moment with Commonwealth migration yeah. when they introduced yeah. um, uh, yeah. immigration controls. And which... we get we get the Windrush scandal now, you know, 50 years later, because they end free movement and they don't actually work out the status of the people who are already here, especially the people who arrived as children, which we did. We did do that better this time, too, too slowly. But, but you've now got, you know, a million uh, people... F- from Poland, living in Britain, some wanting to go back, many deciding to get married and stayed, and children being born here. It might be that the British race and migration identity open a story which worked for Poles and Hungarians in the 1950s as it did for West Indians and South Asians. It might be we need to work a little bit hard to make it work for the children of Poles, Hungarians, Latvians. Well, a lot of them have taken European, uh, British citizenship. But one thing which I'm particularly interested in your um, in your thinking on on Brexit is you kind of have this phrase about, uh, well, you talk about these two notions, diversity and cosmopolitanism, and you kind of argue that the Remainers, the people who wanted to stay in the European Union, were were super cosmopolitan, but quite white. Yeah, I mean, I've been involved in, you know, European debates and, you know, your work over a long period and, you know, different movements. I used to run the Fabian Society centre-left think tank as well. Lots of very liberal, very pro-European people would have been incredibly pro-migration and pro-diversity, but it just wasn't a very diverse group. They're not specific to this issue. It'd be true of constitutional reform and electoral reform and to some extent of climate change as well. But that meant it was surprising to the Remain campaigners when they really were going into Black and Asian communities saying, we're going to have this big referendum on this really big thing. And, you know, when we tell you who's on the other side, you'll be for us because they used to have not power and now they've got Nigel Farage. And Black and Asian Britain were like, oh, what's this about then? Oh, we should be in. Yeah, well, why? Or what's it cost? Or what is it? Or, you know, European free movement. Yeah, migration's good, but European free movement, is that good? That's got pros and cons from our perspective. And it was a moment of surprise. Now, that ended up actually with black and Asian people in a very agnostic, uh, sort of on the fence way voting remain in by a higher percentage than most other groups. But there was a powerful argument side. from the Leave campaign yeah. that that you could substitute freedom of movement for Europeans for Commonwealth migration or family reunions and Indian restaurants would finally yeah, I mean, get all the stuff that they've pretty, been waiting pretty, pretty for. Pretty Patel campaign for you know, more migration for Bangladeshi chefs and save the curry house and so on. But so there was mistrust. There was definitely mistrust of Nigel Farage and that was a reluctant remain dynamic. There was also don't mess the economy up in a recession, you know, stay in the single market. What there was none of, of course, among black and Asian Britons, there was no sense of European identity. But, yeah, I mean, it's Britain, so there isn't a lot of European yeah. identity to go around anyway. But it's an interesting challenge well, I, for... The, yeah. as when we work together, you, in fact, published a very interesting uh, essay by Linda Colley called Britain as Europe, which was a kind of alternative account of Britishness, as a, in fact, as a European identity. And I, I regret that the Remain campaign didn't do it. The Remain campaign said, you can't afford to leave and we dare you to jump. And if you don't jump now, we'll never ask you again, which people heard that and thought however risky it is, maybe we'll jump. But 
because because it was too late, because it was 2016, it was too late to create the European identities. We haven't been doing that in the 70s, the 90s. On There's a story you could have told, we haven't told. There was no contesting of identity at all. And there should have been a story about British identity that was compatible with Europe and multilateralism. And that, that went missing. So one interesting thing, which maybe follows on from the sort of save the curry houses thing, let, let um, diverse people into the country instead of all these Europeans, um, is I think that part of what's happened post-2016 is there's been a sort of degree of othering of, of the Europeans through this question about diversity and how we deal with diversity. So every time the England football team plays abroad, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, um, there are acres um, of, of print columns taken up with accounts about monkey noises being made and other things like that. Particularly in Bul- was it in Bulgaria, you watched. I don't watch that much football. Was it was, Bulgaria? Was a Bulgarian it's game happening recently in the very... Spanish league in the last week or two. Yeah, and there's this sort of notion that Britain is a kind of diverse country at ease with itself, whereas continental Europe is full of kind of racist. Uh, countries that haven't come to terms with their diversity. A lot was made of, of the ban on the veil in France and, and other kind of notions of citizenship. Um, and I, I think that um, that question about Britain's modern identity as a kind of uh, as a as a sort of diverse country that feels comfortable with itself is sometimes kind of counterposed. And you sort of had that a bit with your you know the, the pro Europeans are cosmopolitan but not diverse. Um, is that right? Do you think that? I mean, how how big a strand is that? Is that just a well? We we asked a question. British Future asked a question last week, published last week. Um, very binary question. I don't normally ask binary questions, but we said thinking about big countries like America, Germany, and France, and Britain. Yeah. Do you think we do better or worse on as a place to live for an ethnic minority? And the ethnic minority response in Britain were a bit more emphatic. And the white British response, it was 80-20. Now, I give most of the credit, 80-20 was better. On general, general, we just said as a group, now, in general, I give all of the credit for the landslide, the 80-20. I give that to Donald Trump. And we know a lot about America. You lumped in the US, Germany. Thinking of other big countries. Now, when I've asked people deliberatively, how much do people know about what's going on in Germany and France? Much, much less. Um, Middle-class professional elites in Britain have quite a strong sense that that's true. Um, on the whole, quite a lot of people in the European Union who work on race also think it's true. Um, a couple of foundational reasons, really. I mean, there are lots of post-colonial societies in Europe, and it plays out in different ways. But the level of doubling down on your claim to British identity, if you're British ethnic minority, when it's rejected, if you're the Windrush generation, if you're British Muslim, is extremely strong. You say, you should know your history. We're part of our history. We're definitely British. Why don't you know your history? I'm not sure if other minority migrant communities have quite as much sort of confidence that they own the frame of the identity. And then there's a really practical thing, which is that, um, you know, we have rows when we conduct race audits in Britain. We can have very polarising rows, but we collect the data and we argue about it's it. the French it was, don't collect data. I mean, none of the, none of the other West European countries, except for Ireland, tend, they tend to use migrant origin data, try and proxy for it. There's, a, there's, a, there's an allergy to race data. And then, and then the presence in professional and public life is higher. That will come through. I'm sure the Netherlands is doing quite well. I'm sure, you know, that will come through. But that identity claim, I think, is, is an interesting one. So you just raised a really interesting point about Britishness. I think we should maybe talk a little bit about that because Britishness, I mean, Britain is, is, 
in fact, your whole book is about about how confused all of our identities are, and it's that process of confusion which I think has meant that people with um, migration backgrounds like you and me in a less visible way um, can feel uh, comfortable and at ease as part of the, the UK. But it's never clear what the actual identity is. Is it the UK? Is it Britain? Sure. Is it England? Is it Scotland? Is it Wales? And that's still kind of unresolved. Um, you talk a lot about how ethnic minorities feel much more uh, at ease with Britishness than they do with Englishness, Scottishness, Welshness. Do you want to talk a little bit about the complex of identities? It probably helps. It's the shared citizenship identity of a multinational state for 300 years before it becomes a multi-ethnic identity for 75 years. So that that probably helps. It's always got a bit of pluralism in it. To a surprising extent, Scottish and Welsh identities have gone quickly on the journey to wanting to be open, civic and inclusive. Scotland is a relatively low diversity country. It's got the diversity of England in the 1990s, 5% minority. There's a real effort to say Asian Scots are Scottish. All, all previously nationally, ethnically defined countries, to some extent, are going to have to go on this journey. Englishness, we were slow because it's not a state identity and so apart from having a football team and a rugby team and a slightly agnostic church we we spent less time on it the football team changed who could be English all European countries I think have got a vision of the 11 people who wear the shirt for Switzerland or for Austria for Italy for Germany that reflects you know the diversity of 20-somethings in those countries today. What I realised after feeling much more confident about England and Englishness in 1996, when I was 22, we hosted the football tournament and we changed the culture so in the stadium. We changed, we changed this culture in the stadium. It used to be a very xenophobic, you know, the English would go around, you know, shouting about winning the war and you'd be proud so it wasn't for us. We changed a much more celebratory atmosphere. Not that. If I remember rightly, the head, the front cover of the Daily Mirror, yeah. which is a centre-left yeah. journal, yeah. said, Achtung Fritz. Yeah, they said it was a joke. But there's no doubt. There's no doubt. If you were me at that age, you would come back. It changed. It was more anti-European, maybe than than anti-American. No, but you know, also, but Jurgen Klinsmann was playing in England. There was there was a closeness. There was a a leveling off. Now, what I didn't quite appreciate is that fixing Englishness in the stage and won't fix it in society on a cold autumn night outside a pub. The same flag can mean different things. I think a lot of European countries are in positions where yes, there are definitely black people who play for the football team representing migration and colonial histories, but whether or not as a parent, the child or grandchild of migrants, you're just as Italian, just as Swedish, just as Danish. There will be national debates that go at different paces. Germany, I think, is one very interesting example. It's a late convert to, you know, we want the citizenship of Germany to be open. That's the this century idea. It then does something Britain hasn't done, which is it puts more energy and effort into trying to make that happen at a federal and state level. Whereas Britain has done quite well at this in a kind of laissez-faire, you know, let it happen over time way that's maybe a bit maybe a bit slow. So different national identities can be more open. I mean, there are other non-European identities, Canada, maybe Australia, America in better times, where a lot of energy went into this, how do you get to be us? I think all European societies will have to do that. Whether the European identity will be as open as the national identities, I think is an interesting question, because I think from British minority perspective, European is imagined as quite white. And so I would have been very pro-European as a kind of don't leave the single market person without feeling an affiliated cultural Europeanness. That's one of the interesting things about your diversity and cosmopolitanism, because you could say that the Remain side is very cosmopolitan, but not very diverse. But the, the country Britain's becoming to becoming is one which is much more diverse, but much less cosmopolitan. In that, uh, a lot of the cultural tropes 
knowledge about what's going on in other uh, societies, um, other ways of framing things, that there is a kind of degree of of autism about the, uh, the I'm not sure we're allowed to say that but anyway would, yeah. about the, the British I, I, I would say I'd say we're much more European society in, in many ways you know football obviously but food drink etc yeah. over those 30 or 40 years but that's different from the political question this is one of the challenges for people working politics about whether whether and how to how to make those links it's just I mean the dynamic of Britain which is a slightly unusual one in the European context where different countries struggle with the you know the multilateralism and the transnational is that is that we've got very similar values to other Europeans when it comes you know how much tax do you want to pay what sort of public services do you want up to a point we're a bit mid-Atlantic or you know do you want the death penalty we're not we're not nearly as North American as we are West European but we identify with the countries that speak English and so one of the issues about say freedom of movement as a two-way street is that Britons don't speak enough languages. And so when they emigrate, they emigrate to Australia and America. And so, you know, four-fifths of British emigration has been to English-speaking countries outside the EU. So that that was a different point. I, I think for, for other people, um, European free movement is more of a two-way process than it was for a lot of Britain. And why don't we stick with free movement for a bit? One of the big changes which has taken place post-2016 is that Immigration levels have gone up, which is not what anyone expected. The, the, if the referendum meant anything, in most people's eyes, it was about having less people coming. But the vast majority of them are not Europeans. Um, how, if we carry on having, do you think we're going to carry on having six, seven hundred thousand net migrants um, no. coming into the UK every year? No, I mean it's gone up. It's gone up for two reasons. It's gone up for the exceptional reasons of this year, Ukraine which is and Hong uh, Kong. Two hundred thousand from Ukraine, fifty thousand from Hong Kong, but we've decided to do that. And it's gone up because of Boris Johnson's choices as Prime Minister. Boris Johnson's policy was once I've got control, I don't want to reduce it because I'm quite open. And the Hong Kong visa, one hundred fifty thousand Hong Kongers, it's an unusual thing for post-Brexit Britain to do. But there's a feeling that's got something to do with us. And you know, it's harder to get in. I mean, it's hard to get. You know, the more processes, even if you do qualify under the rules. So, so that's that's an interesting point. That you know, the dilemmas of control means. It stays high because in the end you want lots of people in the NHS and you want people to pick fruit and you want people to do jobs and you're keen to be quite open in a controlled and managed way. But it will it will come down a bit because the Ukrainian point is is part of it. Now, you know, quite a lot of the main people say, oh, I bet you weren't un- expecting that higher immigration and it's less white. But actually the less whiteness is is less important to people than knowing what it is, and you know why Hong Kongers have come, and you know why Ukrainians have come for different reasons. What do you think is going to happen to Britishness as a result of the? Do you think it will become a less European country over time, or do you think that um, and that that will have a kind of um, that there'll be a sort of de facto? Because I, I think the big story of the last um, thirty years is somebody who who came back to the UK having left as a child, coming back in nineteen ninety two. Um, so it's, yeah, it's exactly thirty years almost, has been one of, of Europeanisation. I mean, the food that's available in restaurants, the kind of media people consume, football, but also just the number of people. I mean, there are millions of, of European citizens who've moved to the UK, made it their home. Um, it, it feels palpably a kind of different place to what it felt when, we, when I kind of came back in 1992. But do you think that's something which is going to go into reverse now? I'm not sure. I mean, we're seven years on from that referendum. I think the Leave side had much the better of those three years of stalemate because we hadn't done the thing that people had asked to see. And they've done much worse 
in the three years since. So people have really, people are more sceptical of Brexit than ever before. But the more dominant mood is exhaustion with the sheer level of polarisation of the argument because Britain isn't used to being that polarised. This is very frustrating for the Remainers who want to say all those other things you care about, the NHS and the economy, you know, don't forget the lies were told you didn't get what you want. And it's frustrating for the, I still haven't had Brexit yet, Nigel Farage camp, because people are fed up with that level of polarisation. What that what that means, I think, is that a slow move back to saying, which Sunak represents and Starmer represents, to saying, look, we made this choice and can't we cooperate sensibly? And then we don't know, you know, what is always impossible, obviously, on climate change or foreign policy or, you know, things outside the European Union as well as trade relations with the European Union. If you were sincere about cooperating sensibly, you could cooperate sensibly. That's different from deciding to join versions of the club again, which I, I don't doubt there might be an appetite for that on the centre-left, um, you know, in five, six years' time. There already is among the voters. The party, the political, the Labour Party doesn't want to pursue it um, as politics. But that will be there. And, and then people will say, you can't have your cake and eat it. You can't just join the club and not join the club. But, but sensible cooperation, multilateralism, There'll be a market for that in Britain. And separately, we've got this different question of three, four million Europeans. Do their children get to feel British or do they feel some sense of rupture? We might need to do the work we did with the children of Commonwealth migrants, with the children of European migrants to Britain. So we're coming to the end of our time. But one of the most interesting things that you've been doing over the last decade or more is sort of thinking about public opinion and uh, immigration and diversity and how to avoid these things becoming toxic issues which polarise countries, which power the far right into power, into, into positions of, of authority. And you thought, I think, more than anybody else about how uh, to communicate around immigration, how to, to talk about terms of, uh, about refugees and other issues in, in ways that were. You've also done a brilliant job of showing how a lot of the people in all of our countries who are most pro-refugees and pro-immigration um, manage uh, haplessly to, 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 uh, to create a backlash and to make it politically difficult for their preferred policies to, be, um, to actually be implemented. Do you want to talk a bit about some of the lessons you've learned, which are also in the book? I think, I think that is the golden rule. Don't be the caricature that the populists have of the cosmopolitan liberal elite. I mean, if, if that is you, that's that's difficult, but you, you can have broader alliances. You'll need broader alliances. The populist argument always goes something like this. Too many people taking our stuff. They're not like us. They don't want to be us. And then we're not allowed to talk about it or the elite call us racist. It's not fair. And then that's a difficult thing for the anti-populist. It's a simple and clear message to do because there's a oh, you're saying I don't want to talk about it. Well, I don't want to talk about it if that's how you're going to talk about it. And so avoidance is, is dangerous. Avoidance leads to it being bottled up. So you try and find your way back into it. And you say, well, them and us, global world, open or closed, you know, they blare right, you know, the sun will rise in the morning, you've got to be open, which works for the people who already agreed, but hasn't offered any reassurance. And then you end up with the sort of Economist newspaper and the Financial Times equivalent saying, well, let's sort out the data. They are good for us look at the National Health Service and look at the demographic needs. And that will, again, work reasonably well, but especially if people didn't think it. So to go further, I think you have to say, you're right about the pressures, we're right about the gains. 
Can we manage the pressures, keep the gains? Do we control and select? Do we manage it well? And try and get to how do people become us? So it's how do people become us that transcends the argument. When are people good for us and can we select and manage well is good. There's a, there's a market for controlled openness if people can be confident that their country will go on being their country. And the patriotism, the civic patriotism of the migrants is actually the best uh, reassurance value you've got. So if you can lean into that rather than going for, if you read the studies and looked at the graphs, you'd realise we're right and you're wrong. You'd get out of that distance by education, by social class. And so you've got to broaden the class basis, broaden the political basis of who feels that this is being managed well in their interests. So... There have been lots of different attempts at this question of how you become us and different national models. You know, we had the melting pot in the US and now much more complicated identity politics in the US, much of which actually is now filtering back into into European societies because it's such a dominant cultural space. It is obviously the place where these culture wars, which you have in your title, are are most visible and most violent. Um, You've got the French Republican model. You've got various different Canadian multiculturalism. You've got various different types of of, of, uh, attempts at assimilating and integrating people in European countries. Dutch models often talked about. Germany moved from having a model which was very much based on on sort of gastarbeiters, where you actually kept people out, to having a very different way of thinking about its citizenship. Do you want to talk a bit about about what's good, what's bad, what we can learn, what we can learn from the different experiences, and where the British model fits into this panoply of of different ways of thinking about um, about how you can hold countries together around a set of stories and values which are not just ethnic. Yeah, I think I think I think they're very similar challenges, but there'll be very different national discourses about those challenges. So British and French will always just disagree about who's getting what right because in the end we'll handle faith differently and we'll handle race differently, and that, that will always be the case. We're trying to do similar things, which liberals then point out. They say you're all trying to just get liberal democracies to feel diverse and welcoming and inclusive and to have citizenship that can work. So where there's a liberal mistake, it then says, well, thin it out, ask for the rule of law, don't ask for too much else because it will be too exclusive. I think you should leave in the thickness of British identity, French identity, Dutch identity, German identity, and make it possible for it to attract people um, and for it to be open to people. So that's that's the two-way deal. It has to be open to incomers. And, yeah, it can work for migrants in lots of countries. It has to work for the children of migrants. That's the test. It's open. And when somebody says, yes, if I was born in Italy and my parents are going to, I feel as it Italian as everyone else. You have to be able to feel as Italian, and the rest of Italy has to say that's as Italian. Easier and harder, I think, in different national contexts to see it. You see it when um, you see it when people don't just adopt the rule of law, but where they adopt the national traditions in ways that are meaningful for them. And so in Britain, that will be around, you know, remembrance of the world wars because something that the minority groups were very involved in. In France, in Italy, in Germany, it will be something else. It's easy to do this, I think, at the civic, city, and local level. Um, to find shared points of identity. I think it's slightly harder to do it at a national level, but I think you will do well when the traditions that make Sweden Swedish, Denmark Danish, Britain British are shared. Because in Britain we're talking about a monarchy, a national health service, traditions of remembrance, a BBC. They're quite soft, they're quite inclusive. If the, if the, if the core identity doesn't Monarchy's know what it wasn't is... wasn't that soft for Meghan Markle. No, it's, 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 a, it's got challenges across generations, it's got challenges in Scotland and Wales, and, you know... 
all the minorities felt they attached to the Commonwealth story. British-born minorities don't know the Commonwealth story, but um, you know, it's up to it's up to them to be to be more open. If it if it feels like the things that really you know make people proud to be French aren't ever going to be quite as available across two or three generations, then you'll find this harder. And then the other thing that goes alongside that is just the quality of social relationships, you know, in the classrooms, at the school gate, and so on. If if there are them and us feelings in cities, because this is our part of town, that's your part of town, we go to different schools five miles up the road, you're not going to get the sorts of generational shifts for the better that we've certainly seen in Britain. So meaningful social contact in your in your everyday life, but don't underestimate the value of the macro symbolic version of saying you know we can be proud of a europe that its icons its images its identities as diverse as the europe of today i think that's where you'd want to get to in one more generation and how much do you think um we are um going to be influenced by a lot of these culture wars that, that have developed in the u.s and different tropes which obviously are a product of very particular circumstances and histories uh, in the US, but are also universal just because America is so much um, the generator of, of, of global popular culture. Britain might be more vulnerable maybe than some other European societies because of the English language and the internet and so on. But this is definitely happening. I think both the, both the left and the right in each country should be a bit where we should work out what it wants to inspire it from America or from other countries and what it what it doesn't want. I don't think that a sort of pan pan European sort of conservative nationalist project is going to work across America and Israel and Britain and um so Central and Eastern Europe and so on. I think the British Conservatives should stay a way, long way away from that. Should, so should so should other Europeans in more liberal societies. I mean European societies you know, faith is still there and multi-faith is there, but they're, they're a lot more secular in their approach than uh, than the United States of America. And I think a lot of this is is coming from is, is coming from a specific history of faith um, in America. What's going on everywhere is a split by people who went to university who didn't, and an intergenerational dialogue. I mean, 1968 was a clash between the generations. This is a clash between the generations. It's going to take work, I think, to bridge those generational divides. If you just say, you young, woke, stupid people on campus, you don't understand, you know, liberal democracy, that you won't be listening enough to what's going on, which I think what young people in Britain are saying to people like me with my optimistic story is, yeah, sure, you see all change in your lifetime, but we haven't seen change in ours, and we haven't got equal opportunities yet, so I need to concede that point, because it's true, and work out how to, how to, complete, how to complete the journey. But a sort of very, very polarised them and us politics of culture and identity, I think, increases the distance between ethnic groups, social groups, social classes, and we've made progress when we've reduced it. All right. Well, I think we've run out of time quite comprehensively now, but it's been fascinating talking to you, Cinder. Um, we have one thing left to do on this podcast, and that is our bookshelf segment. Obviously, the top of your bookshelf should be Cinder's book, How to Be a Patriot, Why Love of Country Can End Our Very British Culture. 
Um, but what's on your bookshelf at the moment, Cinder? Well, at the moment, and this is too British for your uh, pan-European uh, audience as well, I mean, there's a lot of very good books on British history at the moment. Trevor Phillips is bringing out a, a new edition, Windrush 75, about this moment of history. And I think we've got a reintegration of history. David Olsuka has done great work as well. But we need the history of the migrant and minority groups to be part of the national history, not to be its own strand of history. So I'm, I've been reading some things about that. Okay, great. Thank you very much for uh, listening to us. If you've enjoyed listening so far, why don't you head to whatever platform you use to download this podcast on and subscribe to future podcasts. And while you're there, it would be fantastic if you could leave us a positive review and a five-star rating. We'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned, including Sunder's book on our website at ecfr.eu. But for now... From Sundar Katwala and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of our podcast is Anand Sundar, and our editor is Maria Farrow Sarat.